Understanding Christianity. I'm Sean Cole, lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor of Old and New Testament, systematic theology, church history, and ethics at Colorado Christian University. Welcome to the podcast today. You know, today's topic, we're going to be talking about evangelism. Uh, evangelism basically means how do you share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with those that are not yet Christians. And, and in my life over many uh, years, there's different ways that I have uh, engaged in evangelism. And there's different models, there's different methods that people have used, and some are better than others. And so I remember back when I was a youth pastor and I was in charge of a vacation Bible school at the church I was serving at. And um, I, I remember that it was a big push to, quote unquote, get kids saved. And so you had this huge altar call at the very end where you had kids come up. And, and basically, I remember giving a really watered down, shallow gospel presentation where it was basically, uh, hey, do you not want to go to hell? Do you want to have Jesus in your heart? Then just raise your hand and come forward. And, and um, you know, how many kids are not going to? want to come forward and say, hey, I, I actually want to go to hell. No, no, nobody's going to stand up and say, hey, I want to go to hell. Everybody's going to want to stand up and say, hey, I want to go to heaven and, and let me ask Jesus into my heart. And so um, these kids came up and, and really what I did was I, I I led them through a sinner's prayer, repeat after me. And, and so they did. And then I gave them immediate assurance of their salvation saying, hey, if you prayed this prayer, you're saved. Never doubt your salvation. You've asked Jesus into your heart. And so now you're saved, once saved, always saved. And after I got back to my office and kind of thought it through, I had the sinking feeling in my heart that I had just done something that bothered me. And back then, I didn't have all of my theology uh, worked out as far as God's sovereignty and salvation. I was still kind of processing through how things uh, worked. And really, what I had done was I had fallen prey to a lot of the modern techniques of evangelism that we see very popular in evangelical circles. Um, you see the sinner's prayer. You see the altar call. You see giving immediate assurance. You see the terminology of asking Jesus into your heart. And, and you may be thinking, well, these aren't these biblical things? I mean, these are things I grew up understanding, and I use that terminology. I, I tell people to ask Jesus into their heart. I mean, our church uses an altar call where we call people to come down to the front, and, and we've used the sinner's prayer. Is there anything wrong with these methodologies? And I would say there's nothing necessarily wrong with them or sinful with them. I would just say they're not biblical. Not that they're unbiblical. It's just that they're not biblical in the sense that we never see in the Bible anybody leading somebody through a quote-unquote sinner's prayer. In the Bible, we don't ever see an altar call. That's more of an invention from the 1800s of Charles Finney and other new measures where they were used to, to bring about psychological appeals to people to have them come up front to the altar. And it was really popularized in the 20th century, um, obviously with Billy Graham and the Billy Graham Crusades. And so a lot of that is still a holdover of the 20th century. And so I'm not saying these things are necessarily wrong. I'm not going to go on a crusade and say, hey, if you use an altar call, you're wrong. Or if you use the sinner's prayer, you're wrong. We also don't ever in the Bible see the terminology, ask Jesus into your heart. We People use that all the time, and that's confusing. What does that really mean? 
ask Jesus into your heart, it, it really puts you on the throne in the sense that Christ is, is basically waiting to come into your life. He's not sovereign. He has to wait for you to invite him into your, into your life. And, and really, it's got a faulty view of the lordship of Christ. So in my ministry and in our church, we don't use an altar call. We don't use the sinner's prayer. And we don't use the terminology, ask Jesus into your heart. And some people may be shocked and say, well, well, how do you do evangelism? And how do people get saved? Or if you don't do those things, what, you know, you're definitely not evangelical. You're not conservative. You're, you're not evangelistic. You know, I, many years ago at my church, I had some people come to me and say, you know, we're, we're not coming to your church anymore because you're not evangelistic enough. And it really bothered me because every Sunday I present the evangel. I present the gospel. I present the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the need for all people to repent and believe almost every Sunday. But their definition of evangelistic was, you're not evangelistic because you don't do an altar call. And that was a big sticking point with them. And since we didn't do the altar call, then they decided to leave and go to a church that practiced that methodology. And so we have to ask the question, okay, if you don't see these things biblically, then how do you do evangelism? What's the best way to do evangelism? Uh, do you use a canned approach? Do you use a template? Um, do you have friendship evangelism where you spend years and years developing a friendship with someone before you finally get around to sharing the gospel? Do you go door to door and, and, and invite people to church? Do you go into the community and do surveys? Uh, do you have street preachers where you stand and present the gospel uh, publicly from, um, uh, you know, in a street preacher type mentality? All great questions, and those all really center on methodology. What method should you use? And I'm not overly concerned about answering the method question because I think the more important question that we answer is, what is the theology first? What is the gospel? What is salvation? How do you share the gospel? And then hopefully your methodology flows out of your theology. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at evangelism Jesus style. How did Jesus do evangelism? Now there's many examples of how Jesus engaged with people in the Bible. You've got John chapter 4 with the woman at the well where Jesus engaged her. You've got Zacchaeus in Luke where he engages with him. You've got Jesus confronting the Pharisees. You've got the woman caught in adultery. You've got many of his healings and miracles. So you've got a lot of examples of how Jesus does evangelism. But I want to really focus in on Mark chapter 10 in the story of the rich young ruler. Because I think in the story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, you see some awesome examples of how Jesus did evangelism. So let's just read the account in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him 
and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus is traveling towards Jerusalem to face the cross and a rich young ruler comes and runs up to Jesus and kneels before him and at first glance seems to be showing great respect and adoration for Jesus. It seems to be that he has the right attitude. He's asking the right question. And so what we have here is, quote unquote, a a model of a, quote, prospect for evangelism. Uh, This is a a preacher's dream. This is an evangelist dream. How how often have you had someone run up to you with intensity and great concern about how to be saved? And he was concerned about spiritual things when everyone else around him probably was not. I mean, the Pharisees weren't concerned. The crowds in Mark's gospel are more concerned about miracles, more concerned about getting food and the feeding of the 5,000, making Jesus a political leader. And so here we have a young man who seems by all outward expressions to be genuinely concerned about salvation. Yet by his question and the response of Jesus, we see something deeper going on here. He was profoundly unaware of the sinfulness of his own heart. So what do we see going on here in this encounter with the rich young ruler? Well, the first thing we see is that many people like this man have a very mixed up view of salvation. And so we see this evidenced by his initial question. What, what's the question that he asks? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. What must I do? The focus of this rich young ruler is on what must he do to somehow achieve or attain eternal life. In his mind, there must be some type of religious duty. There must be some type of personal piety. There must be something that this man must do in order to gain favor with God and have eternal life. And so salvation for him was bound up in duty It was bound up in behavior. It was bound up in what he could do to somehow achieve or attain that grace and mercy. And so salvation is not something that we attain in our own effort. It's something that God mercifully chooses to bestow upon us in his mercy 
and His grace. I've often said it this way. This is just a little saying that I use often in my church. Salvation is not an achieving, but a receiving. In other words, it's not something that we achieve. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we can try hard in order to be on God's good graces. It's all of grace. It's something that we receive as a gift. In essence, from his address to Jesus, he calls Jesus a good teacher. Now, that was not unheard of in that Jewish culture. In the Old Testament, especially in Judaism, um, only God is characteristically called good. And so why was this man calling Jesus good teacher? Was he trying to butter up Jesus? Was he trying to strut his stuff and show that he understood who Jesus was? We really don't know, but obviously his definition of goodness was defined by human achievement and how he regarded himself as good because he had kept all the Ten Commandments since his, his youth. And so he was coming to quote another good man who could give confirmation to him of how good he already was. And so he really didn't need Jesus as Savior. He just needed another good teacher to come and confirm to him how good he thought he already was, that he already thought he was good enough to inherit eternal life. And so what Jesus does is Jesus blows this compliment out of the water and shocks the rich young ruler. So how does Jesus do evangelism with the rich young ruler? Uh, We see a great model here of how to share the gospel with other people. And we'll do well to take note of it and try to adopt it in your personal evangelism and how, especially how you do evangelism, how, how we as a church do ministry. And so what I want us to do is I want us to see six specific issues here related to how Jesus does evangelism. But before I do that, I do want to recommend some books on evangelism that I think have really impacted me. Um, Oftentimes there's so many books out there on evangelism, uh, so many different resources, but there's three books that I would say have had the greatest influence on me personally in how I've done evangelism. The first is by J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. I mean, it's a classic book that really deals with how God sovereignly saves sinners and and how God's sovereignty works with our personal evangelism. So Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. The second book is is by a man named Will Metzger, and it's called Tell the Truth. Tell the Truth. And in this, he really gives more of a theology of how to present the gospel, and then he gives a pretty good template or model of how to do that. And then another book is by Walt Chantry, Walter Chantry. It's called Today's Gospel authentic or synthetic. And really, he takes this whole issue of uh, the rich young ruler and unpacks that and says, basically, our modern day way of doing evangelism is being very watered down. It's very man-centered. And so I would recommend those three books to you. So let's look at these six issues or six characteristics or six things that Jesus does that help us in our personal evangelism. So first of all, what does Jesus do? He starts with the attributes of God the Father to demonstrate God's goodness and holiness. Notice what Jesus says to his question. Verse 18, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus points everything back to God's goodness, God's holiness, God's majesty. He begins with God as Father. God as Creator. God as our Judge. God as the Potter. You know, in our world today, most people don't have a clue about the true nature of a holy God. 
in our culture today, God is, is very generic. You have movie stars and you have athletes that quote-unquote thank God or thank the Lord when they win an award, but you look at their lifestyle and it's the furthest from having a relationship with the true and living God. And so in our evangelism, especially in a culture that's becoming more post-Christian, in a culture that doesn't have the categories that maybe past generations had, it's important to go back to the very beginning and just establish who God is that God is the creator of all things, that God is the sovereign ruler over all things, that God is the potter, that God is the father. He has sovereign rights over his creation, that we are accountable to him, we're subject to him. Uh, we cannot live how we want to live, but we're accountable to him. him. And if we don't submit to God, he has every right to be our judge because he's the sovereign creator. Uh, it's very interesting that in our culture today, you, you have to almost back up and establish from the scriptures who God is. Because so many people have a faulty view of God. Either God is the sentimental grandfather in the sky who just kind of winks at your sin. He's there to kind of get you out of binds when you're in trouble. He's, he's this cosmic distant bellhop who's just there to dispense gifts to you. A Christian Smith, uh, many years back, uh, did a study of teenagers in America, and basically in the study, he coined a phrase that's become kind of popular. He called it thera moralistic therapeutic deism is what most uh, people believe about God. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, let me break down those, those three words. Moralistic. Uh, basically, in the sense of moralistic, what most people, he says, what most young people in America believe is that God wants me to be nice, God wants me to be good, and if I'm nice and I'm good, then God will reward me for being a nice person. Moralism. Therapeutic. God exists to make me happy. God exists to meet my needs. And so everything's about me having a good life, having a productive life. And so if I'm just a nice person, and if I just have my needs met, then that's what a relationship with God's all about. And then deism is, is basically this idea that God is distant. God kind of created the world and he wound the world up like a watch. And then he steps back and just kind of lets it go. And if there's a major problem, he'll intervene. But most of the time, God is just distant. And so the way that, that Christian Smith says most people relate to God is that God's this distant bellhop in the sky that kind of comes to my rescue when I have problems. He's really only concerned about me being nice and he exists to give me my best life now, as Joel Osteen would say. And so that's just one view that, that Christian Smith, a, a sociologist, has said that people have about God. And even in our, in our post-Christian culture, who knows how many other views people have about God, or maybe even they don't even believe in a God, quote unquote, they believe in a goddess or they believe in a, in a, in a spirit or they're agnostic. And so, you know, back in the 1950s or 50 years ago, when you, you, you coined the term God, do you believe in God? You know, our country was a Judeo-Christian country. It didn't mean everybody was saved or everybody was regenerate. It just means that everybody had some semblance of understanding who the God was of the Bible. Today, people have no categories. People have no clue. And so you have to start from the very beginning with who God is. You've got to establish that God is creator, that God is sovereign, that God has the right to rule. And this is where it's important to really go back to Genesis. And oftentimes in my evangelism, I take people all the way back to Genesis to talk about God being creator. And then we talk about the fall and how Adam and Eve 
fell into sin and were accountable to God and, and really why is the world messed up and why is there sin and why is there division and why is there conflict and why is there war and genocide and murder and rape and, and depression and sickness? Why, why is all that stuff existing? Because people can't deny that. People are hurting. People have, have issues in their life. People are broken. They see it all around them and maybe they don't understand why it is that way. And so you take them all the way back to the beginning and show them God's plan for creation and then show them the fall. And so the very first thing Jesus does here is he establishes God as the one who's good. So he starts with a theology of God is where Jesus takes the rich young ruler back to. And so that's the first thing we need to do is we need to elevate the sovereignty and majesty of God because so many people don't even understand that or have categories. Now, what is the second thing that Jesus does? Jesus uses the law or the Ten Commandments as a schoolmaster to convict this man of his sin and awaken his conscience for his need of a Savior. Notice what Jesus says. It's very interesting. Jesus does not say, hey, do you want to ask me into your life? Hey, I'm here to give you a good life or I'm, I'm here to help you. It's very interesting what Jesus does. Verse 19, he, he begins with the Ten Commandments. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Very interestingly, Jesus takes him through the second half of the Ten Commandments. Now, on outward appearance and just rote behavior, it could be possible to obey the Ten Commandments in a very limited sense. But what Jesus is doing here is he is showing through the law how accountable, how needy, how desperate this rich young ruler is to see the, the desperate nature of his inability to keep the law and his accountability as a lawbreaker before God. Because most people think they're pretty good. If you go around and talk to people and you, you, you uh, begin to engage in spiritual conversations, most people don't think they're that sinful. They usually compare themselves to other people. They don't have categories of sin. They may say, yeah, you know, I, I sin here and there, or I make mistakes, or I have issues. We, we, we've changed the terminology. We don't call it sin anymore. We call it issues, or we call it mistakes or problems. And, and, and most people think, you know, hey, I'm basically pretty good. I'm, I may not go to church, or I may go to church. I'm not that religious, but I'm spiritual. But at the end of the day, I'm a nice person. I don't kill anybody. I don't cheat on my taxes. I may have some mistakes here and there, but overall, I'm basically pretty good. So what is the purpose of the law? What's the purpose of the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments were never used as a way to save anybody. The purpose of the Ten Commandments is to be held up as a mirror to show a sinner their absolute necessity of a Savior because they are lawbreakers. They can't save themselves. They can't live up to God's standard. They can't do good. In Galatians chapter 3.24, Paul tells us the purpose of the law. He says, so then the law was our guardian or our schoolmaster until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. What Paul's saying there is that the purpose of the law is like a schoolmaster or a guardian um, a, 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 to, to point us to Christ, to show us our need for Christ. Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, 
No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's very important. Paul's making an argument there. You can't be saved by good works. You can't be saved by obeying the Ten Commandments. You're not going to be justified. You're not going to be accepted by God by doing good works. But the purpose of the law comes knowledge of sin. How do you know you're a sinner? Well, it comes to the law. The law tells you. How do you know that you are a lawbreaker? How do you know that you're a liar? How do you know that you have lust in your heart? How do you know that you're a um, adulterer? How do you know that you are a deceiver? How do you know that you are a thief? How do you know that you're disobedient to parents? Well, the law exposes that. 1 John 3, 4, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So John here defines what is sin. Sin is lawlessness, which means not obeying the law. So one of the things that you need to do in your evangelism is to walk a person through the law in order to confront them, prick their conscience with their desperate need for a Savior. Um, it's often like the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3.17. Jesus says to that church, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. People need to see that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. But most people think, hey, I'm rich, I'm prospered, I need nothing. So your job in evangelism is to use the law to show people their needs. So let me give you an example of this. Now, obviously, this does not originate with me. I learned this through the way of the master with Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron, um, you know, their, their style of evangelism. And so let me just kind of walk you through how you take somebody through the law. Let's say you're talking to somebody over coffee or you're, um, it's a coworker, and, and let's, it would go something like this. Let's pretend the person's name is Joe or Jane or whatever. If, if you're talking to a man or a woman, let's just use Joe, for example. Hey, Joe, I'm so glad that we got to um, meet together and talk about spiritual things. And, and obviously, you know, I've been inviting you to church and, and I know you have some differences of opinion. But do you mind if I just ask you a question? And he would say, sure, that's fine. Joe, would you consider yourself to be a good person? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a good person. I mean, you know, everybody's got issues, everybody's got problems, but for the most part, you know, I'm pretty good. I, I you know, I've not done anything majorly bad. Um, okay, well, do you mind if I ask you a few questions to see just, you know, based upon the Ten Commandments? Are you familiar with the Ten Commandments? Yeah, sort of. I mean, I don't, I can't list them off. Well, that's fine. Well, and I'm not, I'm not asking you to list them off, but it's God's word. And so I just want to share with you what the Bible says about goodness. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? Sure, that's fine. Okay. Joe, have you ever stolen anything before in your life? Well, yeah, I mean, I haven't like robbed a bank or anything, but maybe I've stolen a pencil or maybe I've, you know, you know, stolen time from my employer. Okay. Well, what, what would that make you? Well, that would make me a thief. Okay. So you would admit that you're a thief. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's, that's not, not the totality of who I am. Okay, that's not the totality of who you are, but would you admit that you've done that? Sure. Okay, Joe, have you ever lied? Well, yes, everybody's lied. Everybody's told a, a little white lie. Well, what, what does that make you, Joe? Well, that makes me a sinner. Well, let's be a little bit more specific. What would that make you? Uh, what do we call people who lie? Well, well, I guess I would be a liar. But, but I'm uncomfortable with that because I'm not really a liar. That's just, that's not the totality of who I am. Okay, it's not the totality of who you are, but have you lied? Yes. Okay, so, so you would admit that you've lied. You would admit that you have stolen. Okay, let me ask you another question. Have you ever lusted in your heart? 
after someone that was not your wife or have you ever had lust in your heart? Well, yeah, I'm a red-blooded American male. Who doesn't lust? I mean, yeah, I have to admit I've looked at pornography from time to time. And, you know, just earlier today, this fine woman walked by and I was looking at her and, yeah, I've lusted. Well, you know what Jesus says about that, Joe? He says, if you've lusted in your heart, it's as if you've already committed adultery. And so, you know, basically Jesus is saying, you're an adulterer in your heart. Well, that's strong language. I'm not an adulterer. Well, no, you're not physically an adulterer against your wife, but you have committed adultery in your heart. So, so Joe, you've said that you've lied, you've stolen, you've committed adultery in your heart. Let me ask you another question. Have you ever murdered? Oh, no, I've never murdered. Obviously, well, yeah, I, I doubt you'd murder. I, I didn't think you'd murder. But you know what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, if you hate somebody, it's as if you've committed murder in your heart. You can actually murder somebody in your heart by hating them. Have you ever hated somebody? Well, yeah, I hate my, I hate my boss. Okay. So, so, Joe, these are just four of the Ten Commandments. And by your own admission, you've admitted this. I haven't put words in your mouth. You've lied. Okay, so you're a liar. You've stolen. You're a thief. You've committed adultery in your heart. You're an adulterer. And you've um, basically committed murder in your heart. Does that, does that shock you? Have you ever thought about that before, Joe? No, I've never really thought about that. Well, let me ask you another question. Based upon just what we looked at, the Ten Commandments, would you be innocent or guilty before God? Well, I guess I would be, I'd be guilty. Okay. Let me ask you a follow-up question. If you are guilty, then would you go to heaven or hell based upon God's judgment? Now, at this point, let me just stop here. When I've done this, I've had different answers. Most of the time, people, if they're really under conviction, they would say, well, obviously, I guess I'd go to hell. And if, if you see that person or deep conviction and they realize that they're guilty and they realize they're going to hell, then, then you need to maybe just camp out there and let them feel the weight of that. Oftentimes what I've had happen to me is some people downplay, they're under conviction, they say, well, God's a forgiving God. God's a forgiving God and he wouldn't send me to hell. God's loving, God's forgiving, you know, and they'll, they'll start pleading towards God's love and forgiveness. And yes, God is loving and forgiving. And what's happening at that point is they've been confronted with the law and they're very uncomfortable about their own sin and they're trying to weasel out of being confronted by that. And so you may need to spend a little bit more time letting them know about God's law. Let me give you another example. I was in India back in February. Um, I, I go to India a lot, and I was just myself this time with, with my missionary friend and a couple of other guys and, and a couple of local pastors. And we went to a village that um, has no Christians, no believers in that village. And um, we went up to the, the tribal chief and um, we began to engage him, and, and he was telling us how he worshipped this mountain uh, that was behind the village and that, how that mountain uh, basically was his source of, of worship. And so I said, well, can I tell you about the God who created that mountain, the God who's over all mountains? And he was very interested. He said, okay, let, let's, let me hear about this God. So he gathered the entire village together, and I got an opportunity to share the gospel. And so I started talking about sin and as I was starting to talk about sin, they, they were getting very uncomfortable. They were getting very vocal. Uh, they, were, they were saying things like, we're not sinners. And this was all being through a translator. And then my missionary friend said, you need to camp out here. Stay here. They are under deep conviction. They're struggling with sin. Don't move off this into the next topic. Let them struggle with sin. And so uh, I wasn't quite sure all that was going on because of the translation, but they were... Um, basically visibly distressed over the fact that I was addressing their sin. And sometimes in evangelism, that can be a very uncomfortable position 
when you're actually sharing the law, you're showing people they're accountable before God. And when you do that, it becomes, that's the point in evangelism where it gets very, there's, there's some tension because that person is under conviction. And I think sometimes in our evangelism, we like to shortchange that, that period. I know sometimes when I'm preaching the gospel on a Sunday morning or like maybe preaching at a funeral or, or preaching in some context where I, I know there's a lot of lost people there. You know, one of the things that a temptation I have is to just kind of downplay sin and get to the cross. And because, you know, when you start talking about sin, you're afraid people are going to tune you out. You're afraid that, you know, people are not going to listen to you. And so sometimes there's this, you know, desire to short change or bypass using the law as a schoolmaster. And God uses the law to bring about conviction of sin. And so in your evangelism, you may need to camp out there a little bit longer to truly allow the law of God to do its work in a person because it's through the law that there becomes awareness of sin. And so most people aren't really aware of the depth of their sin until the law is used to expose that. And so that's the second thing we see of Jesus. So number one, he starts with the nature of God. Number two, he uses the law as a way to awaken their sin and to show them their desperate need for a Savior. But thirdly, Jesus urges the man to repent. Now, obviously, we don't see the word repent there in the text, but notice what Jesus does. Um, verse 20, the, the young man, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Well, he's either deluding himself and breaking one of the commandments by lying or, or he's just fooled. But look at what verse 21 says. Jesus, looking at the man, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor. Now, we need to be careful with this because it's not salvation through selling your possessions. But one of the, what Jesus is doing here is he's addressing this man's deep need. Basically, what Jesus is saying is, listen, rich young ruler, you can keep all the commandments outwardly. You can, you can try really hard to, to obey the law and do this outwardly and fool yourself. But it's no substitute for self-surrender to the absolute claims of me on your life. Now, the verbs here are very crucial. The command to give everything to the poor is a decisive, one-time decision to obey Jesus. And notice what Jesus also says there. He says, go sell all that you have and give the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Follow me is what we call the present imperative, which means continually as a lifestyle. Jesus is saying it's not just a one-time decision. It's not just, hey, sign the card, go forward, raise your hand. It's a, hey, if you are going to come after me, it's a continual following of me with your entire life. And that's true repentance. Not one time did you repent. Did you, did you raise your hand in an evangelism meeting? Did you sign on the card? Did you go forward? Did you say the sinner's prayer? But has Christ so overtake, overtaken your heart? and saved you and caused you to be born again, that now your entire life is transformed and you're devoted to live as a follower of Jesus on an ongoing basis. You are continually following Him. Now, it doesn't mean that in order to be saved, that this guy had to sell everything. And you know, Do you sell to the poor? Do you, do you have to go do some type of deed in order to be saved? This was particular in this man's case, but the principle is the same. It's interesting when you think about how some stories in the Bible are juxtaposed right next to one another, what comes right before the story of the rich young ruler? 
It's no accident that Mark, and actually Luke in his gospel too, tell the story of the little children. Let's just back up in the story. Luke, I'm sorry, in Mark chapter 10, verse 13. This is right before the rich young ruler. So let's just back up in the text. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them and blessed them, laying them in his hands. What's the comparison and contrast between these two stories? In the first story, you have helpless, dependent children who are coming to Jesus with childlike faith. They have nothing. They have no riches. They have nothing to offer. They are helpless. They are hopeless. They're they're little babies. And all they can do is come to Jesus in faith. And then contrasted to that, you have the rich young ruler who has everything he needs. He's rich. He's self-sufficient. He's prideful in his own accomplishments. He has everything he needs. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. You need to actually become like a little child, rich young ruler. You need to get rid of everything that you're trusting in, all of your self-sufficiency, all of your hope and your possessions, and you need to humble yourself like a little child and come hopeless and helpless and needy to me. Childlike repentance. See, only when he sells all that he has will he become like a vulnerable child. He'll have nothing. He, he will truly have treasure in heaven in the sense that he will be totally dependent upon Christ for everything. And so in a sense, when you compare these two stories, even though Jesus doesn't say it in the text, he doesn't say to the rich young ruler, hey, become like a little child. But contextually, in the way that Mark has, has crafted under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the narrative here, you could say that you know, when he sells his possessions and has nothing, he will be like a little child and he will have the kingdom of heaven. That's what true repentance is, is repentance is a willing to give up all and turn from idols. You see, this rich young ruler had an idol. His idol was his possessions. And it could have been either the idol was his possessions or the idol was his um, pride and his ability to, to keep the law. Either way, it was an idol. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, Paul tells about how the church in Thessalonica turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Some of you may think, well, you know, this, is, this really sounds like works-based salvation, that Jesus is telling this guy that the way to get saved is by selling all of your possessions and doing a good deed. Uh, there, there's a work that this man must do to be saved. Uh, and, and that's totally missing the point. The issue here is repentance for this man. The issue was, if he truly was to come and follow Christ, giving up all he had was the idol that he needed to give up in order to truly repent and come to Him. Uh, And so in the same way, in coming to Christ, we must give up self-preservation, self-serving, all the substitutes that we have for Christ. Okay. So what's the fourth thing that Jesus does? Jesus challenges the man to trust in Him personally. Notice what He says, Come, follow Me. Jesus offers Himself as Savior and Lord as a substitute for this man's possessions. Think about a great exchange this was. See, to this man, what, what was more alluring to him? 
His possessions were more powerful. His possessions were more beautiful. His possessions were more alluring and more glorious than Jesus himself. He didn't see Jesus as this great treasure that he needed to come and give his life to. He did not see Jesus as supremely more valuable than all the wealth he had accumulated. And that's the whole point. The whole point is that Jesus offers himself a relationship with himself. And so one of the things that we need to do in our evangelism is offer Christ himself to people. People are not saved by believing in a philosophy. People are not saved by holding to a set of doctrines, although very, very important. People are saved by embracing Jesus personally as Lord and Savior. And so in your evangelism, once you've used the law, and once you've called people to repentance, once you've you know, exposed their idols, you've got to elevate Christ in his, in his person and show how Christ is glorious and show how Christ is wonderful and, 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 and call them, urge them to place all their faith in Christ personally, to come to Christ personally in relationship. Fifthly, Jesus truly loved this man, but he didn't lower the bar on salvation in order to close the deal. Notice what it says there in verse 21. And Jesus looking at him, loved him. The verb for looking at him really means to look intently. Jesus examined and scrutinized this young man. Deep compassion. Now, it's important that we need to love those who are lost. You know, evangelism is not this cold, calculated thing where we go out with um, the gospel in our gun chamber and we're just shooting gospel bullets and trying to, uh, you know, get as many people to hear the gospel as we can as this cold, calculated move to somehow, you know, put a notch in our belt. It all flows through loving and having relationships. We need to show genuine concern. We need to love those that we're sharing with. We need to pray for them. We need to show genuine concern. We need to realize that they're souls. Uh, There's genuine souls, people that have needs, people that have sin, people that have hurt, and we need to relate to them in compassion the way Jesus did. Jesus loved this man genuinely. He looked at him and loved him. Now, here's the issue, though. In this man, the law obviously had not done its job. Uh, the goal of the law, again, is to shatter a person into helplessness and hopelessness through pricking of their conscience to show their dire need for Jesus. And so this man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You know, the Greek word here is very strong. Uh, the word there for disheartened, It means he was shocked. He was appalled. It was often used to describe an overcast or a cloudy sky. In other words, his face clouded with dismay. Because the attachments of this world, his possessions were too great for him. He walked away without repenting and trusting in Jesus. But I want you to notice something that Jesus does not do. Jesus doesn't chase after him and say, hey, wait a minute. Hey, hey, let me, let me just, let me clarify things. I'm not telling you to abandon all for me. I'm not telling you to repent. All you really need to do is just come and accept me into your heart. 
pray this prayer, walk this aisle. It's not really that big of a deal. You come back, please. I, I, I want to lower the bar here so that, you know, you can have a relationship with me. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus gives him the gospel and says, listen, God alone is sovereign. God is good. And listen, I'm going to give you the law. I'm going to expose your sin. I'm going to use the law as a schoolmaster to show you your desperate need for me. And I'm going to call you to repent. I'm going to call you to give up all. And I'm going to call you to personally follow me. And obviously the man walked away. And Jesus doesn't chase after him. Jesus doesn't beg him to come back. Jesus doesn't lower the bar and say, really, it's not about repentance. It's not about giving up all. It's not about surrender. You can just, you know, ask me into your life. I'll be there for you when you have trouble. Just try me out. You know, that really bothers me sometimes. This is a side note. When I hear pastors say, just try Jesus. Just try him. As if Jesus is a commodity that if you don't like him, you can get rid of. No, he's sovereign Lord. Jesus is absolutely Lord in this encounter. And he doesn't lower the bar on the demands of the gospel in order to, quote, reel in this fish. Most of us would have wanted to close the deal. We would have wanted to seal the deal. And Jesus just says, listen, repent and trust in me. And and we need to realize that once we've shared the gospel and once we've laid out the demands to repent and believe, if someone walks away or someone doesn't accept it, we can never lower the standard. But a lot of times, I think in evangelical circles, that's what happens. We're so afraid of somebody walking away. We're so afraid of not sealing the deal. We're so afraid of numbers that if we don't have the numbers or we don't have um, people say yes or we don't have people coming to the altar or we don't have all these things happening, people saying the sinner's prayer, then you know we're not going to look good to our pastor friends. We're not going to look good to the denomination. We're not going to uh, pat ourselves on the back and say, look how many people came forward. Look how many people were saved. We're so afraid of... Really, uh, let, let me just be real honest. We're afraid of the sovereignty of God. God alone saves. Our job alone is to share the gospel verbally. We are to share the gospel clearly and compassionately. We are to lay forth the demands of the gospel. We are to call people to repent and believe. We are to be clear. We are to elevate the beauty and glories of Christ in His cross, in His work, and in His office, and to call people to repent and believe in Jesus. And at the end of the day, God is sovereign over that. We don't have to arm twist. We don't have to lower the bar. We don't have to do all these weird techniques where, you know, let's, let's just play just as I am for the 15th time so that we can manipulate people's emotions so, and, and dim the lights so that they'll come forward because obviously we've got to drum up some emotionalism here because not enough people are coming forward. That's, that's a problem. It's man-centered humanistic techniques almost like salesmen, that we're trying to arm twist or we're trying to manipulate. Let me just say this. If the sovereign Holy Spirit of God is working in a worship service or he's working in an evangelism encounter and he irresistibly is drawing sinners to himself, there's nothing you can do to stop them from coming. They will come. They will receive Christ. You don't have to drum up emotionalism. You don't have to lower the bar You don't have to lower the demands of the gospel. You're clear and compassionate and leave the results up to God. Now, it's interesting because, you know, most people would say, hey, Jesus doesn't win any awards for evangelism here because he didn't close the deal. He didn't try to persuade this young man. He didn't try to make, get him to quote, make a decision for Christ. He didn't manipulate him. 
What did Jesus do? Jesus clearly told him the truth. Jesus loved him, and he left it there. As a matter of fact, what does he do? He turns to his disciples and tells them how difficult it is for a rich person to enter heaven, which was really shocking uh, to the disciples. Because in their world, in that ancient world of the New Testament, great wealth was a symbol of God's blessing, kind of like the prosperity gospel is today. If you had great wealth, if you were the rich young ruler, in their minds, man, this guy, and he must be on God's team. He must be, it must be evidence of God's blessing. So Jesus totally turns it on his head. Uh, many people in that day, it was believed the more money and land you had, the more you were meriting God's favor. And the issue wasn't whether one's rich or poor. The issue is the danger of trusting in wealth and riches and security and personal power over Christ as Savior and Lord and wholehearted repentance. And Jesus gives a picture of a camel going through the eye of a needle. Um, many of you probably heard over the years how this wasn't actually a literal eye of the needle. It was a gate in Jerusalem that, that humans could walk through, but camels couldn't do that. Um, not only is that theologically not true, but that is historically inaccurate. It misses the point of Jesus' great statement. There's no physical evidence to ever locate, quote-unquote, this eye of a needle as a gate. Uh, this was popularized in the 1800s, I think, somehow to lower the demands of discipleship, and somehow it struck. What does Jesus say? And Think about the imagery here. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That's the mental image Jesus is trying to get us to look at. I mean, he, it's, it's exaggerated for a purpose. An eye of a needle, a tiny little centimeter, a camel, a huge animal. What does Jesus mean by this weird mental image? Anything that causes true followers of Christ to forget their poverty, to forget their childlike dependence before God, that prevent them from following Him, is like a camel before the eye of a needle. This image that Jesus uses is meant to evoke utter astonishment and the impossibility of rich people entering heaven. It's meant to be shocking. Now, Jesus is not saying if you're rich, you can't be saved. It's not an absolute statement here saying if rich people can't be saved. What he's doing is he's trying to shatter the paradigm of the disciples by saying, obviously, in the disciples' mind, the rich young ruler must have had everything going for him. He was rich. It was evidence of God's blessing. He was a moral man. He'd kept the law. He was coming and asking the right questions. And so in their mind, they were thinking, Jesus, this guy is the perfect candidate to be under God's blessing. And yet you let him get away. And Jesus is saying, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's topsy-turvy. I'm, I'm, I'm turning it on its head. So let's look at the last thing that Jesus does in evangelism. Number six, Jesus explained the sovereignty of God and salvation of sinners who cannot possibly save themselves. Verse 28, they were exceedingly astonished and said, then who can be saved? That's the ultimate question. Who can be saved? If this guy can't be saved, who can be saved? Because he, if anybody, the disciples were thinking, if anybody could be saved, it's this guy. And Jesus gives the answer, the theological answer. Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This is the sovereignty of God and salvation. Yes, it's impossible with man. It is impossible for humans to save themselves 
It's impossible for humans to clean up themselves. It's impossible for them to keep the law. It's impossible for them to earn their salvation. They are not good. And so what Jesus is saying is, listen, the only need that you have, that you have to realize is that you have a need. You have to be utterly helpless. You have to be utterly hopeless. You have to be like a child. You have to come in repentance. You have to come in dependence. You have to come begging in mercy for Christ to save you. And with man, it's impossible. You can't do this because you're a sinner. You can't do this because you're enslaved to sin. The only way anybody's going to be saved is because God alone saves them. It's impossible with man, but with God, all things are possible. In other words, the salvation of sinners comes through Christ alone. And so what we see here is this whole idea of how Jesus does evangelism. So let's just recap and look at these six things. Number one, he starts with the attributes of God. He starts all the way back at the beginning and talks about God's glory, God's goodness, God's character. So we've got to start with God. Then number two, he uses the law. We've got to take somebody through the law, the Ten Commandments, as a schoolmaster, as a, as a means of convicting them for the Holy Spirit to prick their conscience and convict them of sin. Number three, we've got to urge people to repent. We've got to confront their idolatry. We've got to show them what repentance truly means, that they've got to turn from their sins, that they've got to own up to their sins and repent. And we've got to, number four, challenge people to trust in Christ personally, to not only repent from their sins, but turn and trust in Jesus personally. And then number five, we've got to love people, but we can't lower the bar on salvation in order to close the deal. We can't use man-centered techniques to somehow manipulate a decision. And number six, we've got to trust in the sovereignty of God, that with humans it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. And so I hope as you go out and do evangelism, whether it's um, door to door, whether you're a street preacher, whether it's talking to a friend at work, whether it's inviting somebody over to your house, whether it's having coffee, whether it's you're another pastor and you're listening and you're preaching the gospel publicly um, from the pulpit, however you do it. I want us to remember that if we don't have these elements in place, we may be guilty of not giving the full gospel and rely upon the methods that Jesus used. Should we use the altar call? I don't personally use it. If you want to use it, that's fine. I would probably say it's not a very good um you know, pragmatic, I'm a pragmatist. I just don't see it working in my context when it comes to that issue. Should you use the sinner's prayer? I'm not a big fan of it. I don't see it in the Bible, but I'm not going to condemn you if you do. Uh, should you use the terminology, ask Jesus into your heart? We don't ever see that biblically. I don't think it's a very theologically accurate way to do it. So I would discourage you from doing that. And so then what method should you use? Well, you can go through the book of Acts. You can go through the epistles. You can look at, at the life of Jesus and see that there's all different ways to engage people with the gospel. But we've got to remember these six things. Are you talking about the attributes of God? Are you using the law to convict of sin? Are you talking about repentance? Are you urging them to personally trust in Christ? Are you genuinely loving people but not lowering the bar and using man-centered techniques? And are you trusting in the sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners? You know, for me, the best definition of evangelism is this. This is kind of how I would define evangelism. Evangelism is when you clearly and boldly 
communicate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and urge people to repent and believe for the forgiveness of sins. And then you leave the results up to God. Your responsibility is to clearly and boldly communicate the gospel in love and in truth and then leave the results up to God. It's very freeing when you do that because you realize that the only thing you can control is what comes out of your mouth. You're responsible for evangelism. You're responsible for sharing. And God uses your words. God uses your message. God uses the words that come out of your mouth and and the love that you have for people and even your prayers for lost people to bring about the salvation of sinners. So I hope this podcast has been helpful on evangelism, Jesus style. Again, if you have any questions about my podcast or you'd like to contact me, you can go to my website, seancole.net. That's S. E-A-N-C-O-L-E dot net. You can find all my contact information there. I love to hear from you. If you have questions, um, I'd love to just engage with you. I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. And I want to be as a resource for you. So thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. May God bless you. And until next time, I pray that his face shines upon you and that you have an awesome day in the Lord and that you continue to seek his face and to um, evangelize and to share the gospel with the lost. Again, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity with Pastor Sean Cole.